Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. On the show today, uh, we are going to talk around a particular topic, and that is the the idea of cognitive dissonance with regard to many of the issues arising in the world and our response to them. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to look at the process of change itself. It's something that people don't talk about a lot. I mean, everyone talks about wanting to change this, wanting to change that, but very few people understand how change actually works. Mm. So we're going to uh, split the show into two parts today, and the first part will be looking at why is change so difficult? Why is it that you know, we can campaign for years and years and years and people just don't listen or they don't want to change for some reason. And why is it so difficult to change ourselves at the same time? And then in the second half of the show, we're going to look at the six conditions required for successful change and try and get a deeper understanding of how change actually works and the things that we need to look for, the cues that can tell us that change is ready to happen or maybe it's not ready to happen. Mm, Yeah. And uh, there are many examples that we can find in the world, local and international, in all sorts of spheres where there are so many problems and so many challenges arising. So we'll look at them as examples of uh, why perhaps we're not changing as fast as we should or, you know, what, and what's your perspective too? we really like to hear from you as much as we can. You can do so by texting in on 043734 comes up directly on our screen here. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. You are tuned to Future Sense now, uh, up till 11 o'clock this morning with myself, Nick Jeans, and Steve McDonald. And good morning to you again. How are you doing out there? And as I said, uh, you can text in, and you already have texted in. Just quickly cover those. Thanks for that. Uh, two ways to greet the day we were talking about uh, today. We're going to be talking about distance, and Steve will start to reveal all that in a moment. But uh, in re- with regard to that, two ways to greet the day on such a beautiful day. First is good morning, and second is good morning. Many ways to also view those two ways. Yes, indeed. And also talking about the Queen there very briefly. Thanks for Melody, whose sister, and I did already know that, Melody, because I saw it somewhere. Uh, your sister has won a medal from the Queen for her services to conservation and environment. And you say uh, one is not averse to her lovely majesty in uh, that situation. Fair enough, too. Yeah, okay. And please text in 043734 Hmm. Let's take a, let's take a, a tour through... Um, cognitive dissonance. Let's do that. And we often talk about global paradigm shifts. And of course, uh, Her Majesty the Queen is a remnant of a former paradigm. A remnant. And an interesting reminder that these old paradigms don't go away. They're nested inside each other. So often when radical transformational change happens in our world, Mm. a new layer emerges and a new way of being human emerges. But the old ones just kind of sit back and uh, remain around for a long time. And, you know, and it's... Um, challenging in many, many ways because when these layers and layers and layers accumulate, we're faced with a more complex world and mm. a world that has many, many 
different sets of values, different sets of motivations, different ways of viewing reality. Mm. And it challenges us as it becomes more complex to get on and understand and uh, you know it coexist with mm. all of these different mm. viewpoints. It, I mean, first up with that, of course, it's uh, there are so many uh, people I think who consider, in a way, w- when change is necessary, when we are compelled or impelled by something like the obvious one, climate instability, for example, to do something to assume that everybody's kind of on the same page everywhere in the world about this. That's right. It's a very common thing. Mm. Uh, it's a common human trait to just assume that everyone's like me and mm. then you know be puzzled as to why that we can't all agree. Mm. But one good thing about the change process is that the same patterns and principles apply at all scales and it doesn't matter which of these layers of consciousness or layers of complexity we're talking about, the same change principles apply. So for us as people from personal change all the way through to, the, to uh, societal change or change within the whole of humanity, the same patterns of change are, are active and the same principles apply. Mm. And they can also be extended, of course, outside of humanity to any, any complex system. Um, <clears throat> so what we're going to do is we're going to s- discuss some of the challenges posed by these things and also uh, tease out some distinctions so we can start to under- chan- understand change uh, a little bit better. So whether we're, we're just thinking about how we change ourselves or how we don't change <laughs> in some cases, uh, or whether we're interested in being an agent of change within society or, or even wider, uh, you know, within the global sphere, the more we can understand these processes and patterns, then the better we can actually work in tune with the change process. And of course, then the easier it becomes if we're in flow with those those natural mm. things. And that can mean sometimes knowing when to surrender to the larger flow of change, uh, whether to be in stillness and just be an observer, mm. and when to be active and mm. move in tune with the flow itself mm. I mean that that uh, choice if you will between action and stillness the word you use there or, or non-action to be simple and when is when is that appropriate is is a really fine ability to cultivate isn't it? and it's not something that a lot of people I would suggest generalizing here terribly uh, actually have a lot of facility with we don't we're not really taught that are we? no this is the interesting thing is mm. we're not taught about it at all mm. there are lots of things we're not taught yes actually uh, and, uh, History of indigenous people in Australia, for example. There's one. Yeah, and, mm. and perhaps these are things that do need to change. But you're quite right, Nick, and some might call this a process of conscious change, being conscious of the actual change dynamic rather mm. uh, than being tossed around by it, uh, sort of surfing the wave rather than being smashed by the wave, if you mm. want to take a swimming in the ocean mm. or surfing in the ocean analogy, moving with the flow rather than fighting the flow. Mm. And, of course, trying to force change when the timing isn't right or when perhaps you're, you're not moving in the direction of the flow of change can be a tremendous consumer of time and energy. Mm. And so uh, the more we can move in flow with the natural processes, the better. Uh, and if, there, we'll start to talk in a minute about some examples from current affairs uh, and uh, see some really obvious cases where people must be pushing against the flow because after years and years and years of trying to change things, things haven't changed very much at all. And of course, the process of adaptation uh, has to stay in step with changes within our life conditions. And Mm. if that doesn't happen, then as organisms, we become extinct. And history shows us that, that if organisms are unable to change, they don't adapt quick enough enough, to changes within their environment, then they become extinct. Mm. So we need to pay attention to this natural change process, not force it, but work with it. Yeah. 
Now, cognitive dissonance itself, for those who don't know, just a quick, uh, a quick sketch about what that actually means. It refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviours. This produces a feeling of mental discomfort leading to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviours to reduce the discomfort and restore balance. An example, simple example of this is uh, when people smoke, which is a behaviour, and they know that smoking causes cancer, which is cognition, they are in a state of cognitive dissonance, and they may justify smoking continually because they feel like, well, I I'm, I'm only live once, I might as well enjoy myself while I'm here, damn the consequences, and that sort of satisfies or releases some of that tension that they're feeling between what they know and their behaviour itself, their their addictive behaviour, if you will. Um, there's also... Uh, there's, Created cognitive dissonance was first investigated by Leon Festinger, arising out of a participant observation study of a cult, which is kind of relevant, which believed that the earth was going to be destroyed by a flood. And what happened to its members, particularly the really committed ones who had given up their homes and jobs to work for the cult when the flood did not happen? So while fringe members were more inclined to recognise that they had been made that they had made fools of themselves and put it down to experience, committed members were more likely to reinterpret the evidence to show that they were right all along. And that's really the key here, isn't it? You either change behaviour or you can reinterpret evidence to prove that you're right. And I guess we're seeing a lot of examples of this around the world. That's right. And, and of course, a lot of these things come back to being present, to being here now rather than being lost in, uh, in a kind of fantasy. Mm. Um, and how many teachers over the years have just been, you know, really emphasising being here now? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> it's been a long time since I think we've really faced how not in the moment we actually are. And I'm thinking, as you speak, I'm thinking of myself in this context because it's very easy on a personal level to think that you're present with things, but to really be living in either a past version or, or in a sort of false future or, or, or a, a projected future which actually doesn't have the weight of science and, and, uh, and trust, if you will, behind it. So it's a, it's a big thing and something to really, you know, yes, we've always been talking about staying in the present, but it's a really easy thing to say. Uh, it is a big thing, and uh, of course we can sometimes get caught in bubbles. And so, if we isolate ourselves, or we move in a, in mm. a circle of friends that are somewhat isolated from the wider reality, then it's very easy to to stray, you know, into those uh, yeah. constructed worlds. And then, sooner or later, of course, you bump into the wider reality and you experience that dissonance that you're talking about. Yes. And of course, we're living at a time where there seems to be. Uh, a very large change approaching on a global scale. And this uh, was something that Claire Graves wrote about in his research. He called it the most difficult, and I'm quoting Claire Graves here, the most difficult but at the same time the most exciting transition the human race has faced to date. It is not merely a transition to a new level of existence but the start of a new movement in the symphony of human history. Mm. Yeah. That's and beautiful. That, yeah, that was something he extracted from the data in his very extensive uh, field research. Not something that he dreamt up at all. It was was very much based on hard data, and uh, that's a it's a very very challenging thing. It's something you know I became aware of this stuff uh, well over a decade ago now, probably in, in the early two thousands, and uh, I, I guess when I first read that, I had some understanding of what he was talking about. But again until we start facing this dissonance you know it doesn't necessarily become real and uh, it's only probably been in the last maybe five years or so um, that there, there's been such turmoil in the world in terms of you know like a growing snowball of change mm. that I've seen 
the larger population start to wake up and take notice and say, hey, what's going on here? Mm. And you see the rising fear that comes with that and mm. the sort of clutching it, uh, you know, trying to understand what's going on and putting it down to this or that or something else, trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And that's a process that is just going to build and build and build right up until some tipping point, which to the best of my knowledge, I, I'm guessing at this stage, it looks like being maybe in the period 2028 to 2032 where global change will will reach a peak for various reasons and there'll be some major major shifts going on and uh, later in the the 2030s we're going to be living in a very very different world i think and of course that five years you mentioned there that observation that in the last five years this uh, feeling has been rising in in humanity i think is is fairly accurate and also corresponds uh, fairly well to the rise, for example, of fake news and the, ri- the rise of social media and the impact of all of that on our um, our understanding or our, our trusting, our safety, our security, our certainty around what is true, what is true, what is false. It's very difficult to actually ascertain now that, and there is so much information out of there. It's, it's overwhelmed, which we've talked about a lot on this show in this era. So to actually figure out, you know, how to locate yourself in a way that, uh, that uh, you know, doesn't create this incredible dissonance to a degree where you can't function anymore. You just you just drop back in a way that you just don't do anything. You just stay where you are because it's too hard to change. So you know, it's, clearly, it's getting more and more difficult to actually know how to, which step to take, in which direction for many people. That's right, and there are many, many different responses depending on where people are at themselves and you know what they feel inclined to do. And for some people, you know, it's not. Uh, I, I guess you could summarise it as uh, the old sort of freeze, fight or flight instinct that we all have you you know you either freeze and, and, and just don't know what to do or you decide you're going to fight against yeah. it in some way or, or you're going to try and escape it yeah. in some way and one of the things we can do to help us make sense of what's going on is to look back in history to the last paradigm shift that we went through and it's fair to say that i think what Claire Graves uh, wrote is, is probably quite accurate and we're facing an unprecedented change that's coming perhaps in the next 10 to 15 years Um, But uh, we can certainly learn by looking back to previous paradigm shifts and get an understanding of the kind of things that go uh, go on around paradigm shifts Mm. and a kind of signposts that can help us understand Mm. how far away the shift might be. And one of the things that went on during this transition between the agricultural era like that which we were in through the middle ages there and then the emergence of the the scientific industrial mm. era european renaissance was the european renaissance yeah. exactly yeah. and that happened right before those two revolutions the scientific and industrial revolutions mm. and during that time a renaissance of course is a is a revisiting mm. uh, something that had been previously and so there was a, a big regressive value search back there uh, and we descended from what was, uh, I guess, a relatively stable way of living in the agricultural era where the society was quite structured uh, and uh, there were kings and queens and, and they, you know, they ruled over their, their land, their empires, and everybody was born into a particular place in society and they really had no choice but to live their life out in within that strata of society that they were born into. Whether and that's were, the way it was. They were probably quite happy generally to do that, in fact, for a long well, time. Well, I think they just had no choice. Had it no was choice. just accepted that it was the way it was. And, mm. and if we go back another paradigm prior to that, we go into what was a, a martial, individually-oriented paradigm where the world was uh, racked with conflict mm. and violence. 
and you can see that during the period in the Middle Ages, there was a regression back into that violence. You know, the Middle Ages were a very, very violent time. And so from the agricultural mindset, we regressed back into this martial uh, conflict-based egocentric mindset, which gave rise to a, a hell of a lot of conflict. And that was the slingshot uh, effect of that time. Mm. And we often talk about the slingshot, slingshot effect on this show in that in order cre- to create forward momentum, uh, if you take a slingshot as an example, you've got to pull backwards on an elastic band and create enough tension uh, to the point where you can let it go and actually get the forward momentum that you need. And the same um, phenomena occurs in change processes, whether they be personal change or widespread change. Mm. We get the tension building and building and building, which of course is what rec- creates the dissonance that you were talking about. And then at some point there'll be a release and all of that energy that has built will be released and then that will carry us forward and so we can see this happened back during that time, during this uh, transition between the agricultural era to the scientific industrial era. And we can also see it happening now. So there's a lot of uh, regressive value search going on now. We're regressing back to the rigid ways of thinking, very structured ways of thinking that we saw in the agricultural era. And that's showing up as the rise of the, the right wing. And, and also it's showing up even in the left wing uh, in politics. And uh, look at all the regressive trends in society right now, like retro music, for example. <laughs> and uh, I should also add to when you're talking about um, past uh, violence and the sort of martial period, you know, we, we obviously still have this and some elements of, uh, of society in some places, of course, live through that um, layer, that mirror, that uh, window still. And you could point to some of the fundamentalist religious uh, activists and the murders and horrors. I was listening to a show the other day about Mosul and the, the battle for Mosul yes. and, uh, and that, for example, and the, and the terrible sort of archaic middle, middle age uh, um, punishments with, that were meted out by, um, by ISIS and, and, uh, and the like in that country and many others. Of course, not just, not just that particular form of fundamentalism it happens everywhere. No, that's quite right. And of course, as I was saying at the start of the show, these older paradigms don't disappear. They, yeah. they can usually be found somewhere in the world where they're persisting, and that is tied to the complexity of life conditions. And the simpler the life conditions are, then the simpler the value sets are. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and of course, I've had personal experience uh, having served uh, in Somalia uh, with the army back in the early 1990s of a society that had actually developed into... Um, a fairly, uh, certainly at least to agricultural era um, standards and values, and, and maybe poking into the to the modern world. And there were there was evidence there. For example, where I was based in a little town called Baidoa, I think it was about 240 kilometres inland from uh, the capital of Mogadishu in Somalia. There was an old agricultural college that was in ruin. Uh, And the town of Baidara itself, it had no government, it had no essential services, there was no electricity, there was no garbage collection. Uh, People were were, um, defecating in the streets and, uh, of course, in fear of their life from um, bandits running loose uh, Mm -hmm. using power and violence. Um, And it it shocked me when I arrived there just to see things like, for example, a Coca-Cola factory which was sitting there in ruin. And, and of course, we were all picking up the, the Coca-Cola lids from the factory and taking them as souvenirs, you know. Uh, there was an agricultural college. There was a Fiat car factory. So mm. so these things had been up and running and society mm. had been operating on that level and yet it had descended back, mm. regressed back to basically a martial mm. uh, state. 
That's really important, isn't it? Because that is, to some degree, in many places, and not just in uh, developing countries, but that we're going to see a lot more of this in these coming difficult times, this regression back and the, the failure of some movements forward that are often quite positive, but may not may not quite succeed yet. But those sort of pushes into the new two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, that's the way it works, isn't it? That is the way mm. it works. So the, the very interesting thing is that the more we understand the process of change, the less regression is needed. And that, that's a really, really important oh, yeah, point. So yeah. if we understand when we feel the earliest stages of dissonance, that that is a signpost. It's a signal to us that change is needed. And then if we can look to see what change is needed and act on that at, in those early stages, then we don't need that boot in the backside, which normally comes from the slingshot effect. And that's exactly what it is. The slingshot effect is, is a boot up the back saying, hey, wake up, you need to change, you need to act. Yeah. And the more conscious we can be, then the less we need that. Have you heard your kick up your ass this morning, folks? <laughs> it's going to replace uh, superfood uh, smoothies shortly. That's right. To kick up the rear end and get yourself going. Yeah, you're ready to change. Yeah. So, yeah, and of course today change happens much faster than it used to, and that's largely because of our communications technology, which is much, much faster than it used to be. And that's important too. You mentioned the European Renaissance, which of course was like 300 years yes. in that transition. So we, we don't need 300 years anymore. We don't. Mm. We don't. And uh, and it's all the more reason to wake up and you know be conscious of change because it's going to be on us very, very quickly. Yeah. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking Future Sense here on Bay FM. You tune to Future Sense here on 99.9 with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans through till 11 o'clock this morning. We're talking about cognitive dissonance or dissonance with regards to change, how hard it is to change, why is it so hard to change, and what we need to, uh, what conditions we need in order to change. Yeah. Exactly. And a couple of distinctions and definitions just before we dive too deep. The first one is the difference between what, what is called translational change and transformational change. Some people call those minor change and major change also. So translational change is when you make a change within an existing system mm. or set of circumstances. So you're not really changing the fundamental basis of whatever it is. You're just shifting things around and perhaps refining it, making it better, making it more effective. But it's still, at the end of the day, basically the same mm. thing. Worst same. case scenario is moving the deck chairs around on the, on the Titanic. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that would be uh, a An matter extreme. of making translational change when transformational change it's is required. Really right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, do, do you try and plug the hole or just move the chairs around so you're more comfortable as you sink, or do you actually abandon the ship and then build a completely new ship? What a metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so at this time, depending on what we're talking about, both of those types of change can be appropriate. You know, there are some things in our modern day society which will survive through the big changes to come, but they'll need some sort of translational change. So they'll need some sort of refining to make them work better or more more appropriately. Mm. Uh, and there will be other systems which literally need to die and be reborn. They, they need transforming into something completely new yeah. uh, based on different values and different um, principles. And the process of change can be what's called evolutionary in that it happens in small increments 
or it can be revolutionary, revolutionary uh, like the slingshot in that the tension builds and builds and builds and then it just explodes in a volatile way and is all over us before we know what's going on. And of course, the most desirable wave of uh, change happening is in an evolutionary sense where we're conscious of what needs to change and we work slowly bit by bit to transform something, uh, transform it completely. It can still be transformational change, mm-hmm. but it's just a gradual process. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, as opposed to a revolutionary change where and it's called revolutionary for obvious reasons because you know the tension builds and builds and builds and then and then people bust out, overthrow the old. Exactly, yeah. the old is overthrown, um, and uh, I think we're going to see a considerable amount of revolutionary change over the next ten to fifteen years. Well, as you're speaking, I'm thinking that in a way we've probably been um, been um, cultivated even to want revolutionary change in a sense because perhaps. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of part of our culture, you know, to have those sort of explosions, those sudden things that go pop. You know, they're sort of exciting for us. We like the you know the sh- the shiny things. We like the glamour of of suddenness uh, too. So there's a bit of a trap there, I think, too. Yeah, that that's really been the way of the mm. modern scientific yeah. industrial era. Uh, boom and bust has has been the, the modus operandi. Basically, you you push things until they bust. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, once they bust, everything falls down, and then you push them again, and they boom until they bust again. And that's been a repeating pattern. And so, that the reason that that way of being human and that way of living is starting to slide is because it doesn't work anymore. Things need to change, and we need to move from that pushing things till they break mindset to a completely different way of being human and a different way of living that is sustainable. And of course, this is a hard conversation, especially for those who are seriously and emotionally and genuinely affected by you know some of the big problems, challenges we have on the planet, to actually uh, find a way to work on uh, a slow and steady transformation towards a, a known, uh, hopefully a, as much as you can, a known goal, rather than to overthrow, as you use that word, overthrow. But we're seeing a lot of overthrowing tendencies at the moment again, and I'm not saying they're wrong personally, but it's it's for me personally, it's a little hard to know where to put and i think this is true for a lot of people where to put one's energy now do you go up against this and that in this in the streets with placards and bang 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 and face them you know in some cases as the as the chinese are doing now to the people to the citizens of hong kong these uh, protests that are going on there for example uh, and you'll come back to that yeah martin armstrong has forecast yes. this year from his computer algorithm uh, civil unrest around the world of course we've seen a lot of civil unrest in France much of which hasn't been covered by the mainstream media yeah that's true Uh, yellow vest Martin Armstrong has predicted it in the USA and uh, thankfully that hasn't really showed up on any scale yet there but of course Hong Kong and uh and there are other places around the world and, well, and some radical stuff happening in Iran at the moment that may well, and I, and I think has already resulted in some civil unrest there. And we've got, uh, I think, four million at last count Venezuelans who slipped over the borders of Colombia. Yes. Uh, which is another you know place where there is serious um, uh, unrest and transformation that is really needed yeah. desperately. Yeah. And just a, a shout out to Colombians in the area too, because apparently the Colombians have been incredibly hospitable and loving to the Venezuelans, Venezuelans coming over. So that's a lovely change. That's good to refugees, hear. Refugees. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Indeed. 
Yeah. So by understanding the change process and understanding you know, how it works and also the signs to look for, then we have more chance of actually working in tune with the natural flow of things. Mm. And uh, of course, once you're in flow with things, then it decreases the need for that revolutionary um, aspect to, to happen because you know the revolutionary change is usually a characteristic of, of being surprised by the need for change mm. and then having to act quickly. Mm. So some of the things that need to be present before change will flow are first and foremost the dissonance that you've already discussed. So um, the word dissonance I think comes from uh, music really, doesn't it? Yes. Like discordance. Yes. And uh, if you can imagine sort of standing in between two pianos and they're both playing different notes and those notes aren't harmonic and so you get that dissonance of like the, the, where the sound is clashing and it's it's not harmonic at all. They used to call one of those uh, the, the flattened fifth, the devil's interview, interval because they, it was so dissonant they did that, uh, that the church banned uh, the use of that particular uh, harmonic in music for a long time. That, that's historically correct, yes. indeed. Uh, and of course, when if you were the person standing in between those two pianos and you're hearing this terrible sort of dissonance, um, the inclination is to move, right? You want to move towards probably the note that sounds the nicest to you and further away from the other note. Well, you make a third note that balances the two of them. <laughs> That'd be my way, my attempt anyway. Have make it really loud so you can't hear the other ones, right? <laughs> You're referring to our jamming again. Yeah. So, so no, we'll leave that. Um, so dissonance has to be there. There has to be that discomfort. And uh, again, this is the, the evolutionary tension that we often talk about. It has to be present. When people are comfortable, they want to stay comfortable. That's just part of human nature mm. and very understandable. Another thing that has to be present is some kind of insight into what's next, some understanding or inclination, some instinct, intuition, as to what to do in order to escape the dissonance. Uh, and uh, unless that insight is present, then you'll feel kind of trapped and you'll feel like you have no choice but to sit there and, mm. and not enjoy the experience. And the third thing that has to be present is that any barriers to change need to either be removed or you, you need to uh, be assisted, you know, given some assistance that allows you to overcome them in some way if they're not mm. gonna be removed. A bridge over the top, for example. Mm. And, and of course, all of these things are very much related to timing as well. Uh, it reminds me of that old song, you know, there's a time for this and a time for that. Oh, yes, from the, from the Bible. Uh, yeah, mm. exactly, yeah. Mm. So, uh, so timing is very, very important. And, and I think that's probably one of the most difficult people, uh, sorry, the mo mm. most difficult things for people to understand is that sometimes the timing hasn't arrived, you know, for the change to flow mm. yet. And the tension has to build further, the dissonance has to be stronger before people are going to be inclined to, to change on a large scale. And certainly, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment in current affairs, aren't mm. we? Yes, well, well yes, right. Uh, just mention on that on that though because I, as you're speaking I'm thinking of the emotional power that now is driving so many people to, to take action immediately the things have to change now yeah. and they have to do something about it right now yeah. and we'll pull in some things that are not necessarily true or are you know not researched properly in order to prove their point and that to, to not feel the dissonance I'm right about this I know this is bad for me we must do something now kind of thing this very strong emotional uh, response that many people feel in sort of the activist movement for example yes what do you what do you make of that? How does that fit into this? Uh, because it's not the best, as you're speaking, it's not really the best driver for ultimate for the, the most effective change. And yet, it, look, it's very difficult to use words like best yeah. and good and bad when we're talking about human nature because it's so circumstantial. It really depends on 
you know, what the mm. context is, what the life conditions are, what value system is at play, and at what point in the change process people are at. Mm. And, you know, if you think of change as like yeah. a cycle, a process that we flow through that goes from stability through turbulence as things start to feel dissonant and then descending into chaos as things are falling apart and then in the process of falling apart, creating the space for the recreation, mm. the regeneration of something different. Mm. Then or often, for an insight to emerge, for example, in that space. That's when the insights emerge. You yeah, know, when, exactly. when things are falling apart, people yeah. are under pressure, uh, and of course, they, they, you know, they often will go into different mindsets, different states of consciousness, even during that time. Mm. And people seek out different states of consciousness during that time in order to gain the insights. Mm. Uh, one of the observations Claire Graves made was that during those turbulent times of change, people are often will turn to sources of altered states, such as drugs, for example. Uh, you know, the, the usage of drugs often goes up during times of change because mm. people are trying to find some insight. They're trying to find a different perspective on things. And when used constructively, that can be extremely useful. But, mm. of course, it can be damaging if people don't understand, mm. you know, what why that driver is there. Uh, and it, it can be used as a, as a form of escapism as well yeah. as constructive. I was, uh, as you know, I was in New York at the time of 9-11, living there for a few years in New York City. And um, at the time of 9-11, on the day, on the morning of 9-11, I was literally a kilometre and a half away from the towers as, as it burnt down. And my kids at the time were in the Steiner School in New York, which is a great school and great honouring. And of course, the Steiner School, uh, being a very uh, an established but alternative form of education, attracted a lot of uh, what you'd say left-wing, alternative, green, sustainable kind of uh, parents and their kids. And they were pretty elite, of course, in New York City. So that also was a factor there. Their life conditions were pretty good and they didn't really want to change very much also. But then 9-11 happened. And while before that, uh, the discussions, for example, that I might have in the school with other parents there would be very open, uh, would be, you know, about uh, a free and equal society and so on and so on. As soon as 9-11 happened, within a week or so, even the parents inside the Steiner School sort of shut down and uh, didn't really want to talk about uh, George W. Bush, even though they clearly hadn't voted for him. Suddenly they, they were sort of loosely aligned to the position with regards to invasion of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in that era. And I found it really curious, and it's a really good example for me of, of that cognitive dissonance, that on one hand they, they really believed in a free and open society. On the other hand, a bunch of supposedly uh, Islamist terrorists destroyed the trade towers, a symbol of freedom and prosperity in their city, and they couldn't actually make sense of that. And so instead of actually going up and looking carefully at what really happened there, why did this happen, they kind of aligned themselves generally behind the status quo behind George Bush. And I found that quite alarming at the time, but I see now that it sort of relieved that dissonance that they were feeling. And the, of course, everybody was pretty traumatized there too, naturally. Yeah, of course. And, and when you're facing such dire consequences of change, you know, and when it's so devastatingly in your face, uh, yeah. you know, it puts people on very, very shaky ground. Mm. And anything that starts to look like more firmer ground, you know, they'll gravitate towards uh, often, um, often even clashing, you know, what with what their values have been yeah. prior to the change. Well, that's what happened. I mean, people, people literally closed down in, in my presence when I sort of asked slightly difficult questions. And I'm a very, you know... Um, uh, 
that kind of questioning. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sort of fairly balanced. I don't disrupt too many people too often. I don't yeah. think. Uh, nevertheless, I found people closing down yeah. uh, and just not wanting to enter a discourse that would challenge uh, their sort of aligned views. You know, they, literally, people were looking out the corner of their eyes. You can see that you know, yeah. sometimes. And that, you know, that this is the regression process, and yeah. that's a perfectly normal part of human nature. And in extreme cases, you know, where people are extremely shocked, of course, you do get the regression right back to the, you know, what are essentially animal instincts of, you know, fight, freeze or flight. Um, and, and so what you're explaining is, is really an example of yeah. that. And, and then the regression also, that's not that extreme, but takes people back to simpler value sets. So, so rather than, you know, when life is comfortable, you can explore all sorts of intricate complexities and options. But when life becomes uncomfortable, you will much more readily settle for a simple solution. You know, you'll go back to that black and white, yes yeah. or no. You know, yeah. it's like okay, uh, you, you're sitting on a pile of wood and it's on fire. Do you want to get off or not? Yes. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And, and you know, in, in the United States, of course, it's very easy for many people to align to the concept of manifest destiny. That America actually has some, you know, God-given something that yeah. is that exceptional. The, the, the concept of exceptionalism that's often talked about it with America. Yeah. So that, that that's sort of a retreat back to that old old value system as well yeah absolutely i used to work in the corporate change arena as a change consultant mm. and people in that world would literally talk about the burning platform as a change strategy you know that was a that was a, a, a kind of um a little dumb in my respect but uh, you know a, a fairly simple principle that was bandied around in the corporate world was if you really wanted people to change first of all you had to build the burning platform and convince people that okay you're standing on a burning platform you have to do something mm. you know very sounds very, like, sounds very like the sh- very crude, but I mean, it it's, it's, uh, kind of fits with the whole uh, 9-11 scenario, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. Just gonna, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the, the show which we both watched, Billions, which is yeah. very much about those kind of strategies. You yes. know, stand on a burning, you're standing on a burning platform, perform. Yeah. Now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's look at um, some of the local, more recent things and examples of this. The um, Australian Federal Police raids on uh, a News Corp female journalist. I don't have a name in front of me, but, uh, and the oh, ABC. Smithhurst. Smithhurst. That's, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, but uh, perhaps, arguably, perhaps a bigger thing is the raid on, uh, on the ABC officers uh, the other last week or so. And uh, some, I think, nine thousand documents, basically taking everything out of their computers and, and everything gone. How do we look at this kind of thing, uh, this invasion of privacy, this um, this balancing between, well, <laughs> you know, national security supposedly, yeah, and and, uh, and private rights and personal rights and the rights of journalists. For those people who are listening around the world, just to put oh, yeah. a little bit more context around this, so uh, the ABC is uh, one of our news agencies here in Australia, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and in, in fact uh, they are a government-created agency mm. but seem to enjoy an amazing level of independence, mm. uh, un- unlike in most countries, you know, for government yeah, control. A, a bit similar to the BBC and a little bit like public radio in America, but not quite the same either. Yeah. yeah. But certainly there's a lot of tension between the government and the ABC, that's for sure. And the ABC were the recipients of some leaked classified information, which, according to the authorities, was classified secret and top secret. 
which came out of uh, the military, and uh, it was information about uh, the potential commission or the, the, um, the possible or alleged commission of war crimes in Afghanistan by Australian special forces. And so very, very sensitive information. And uh, what has happened is that the Australian Federal Police have decided to raid the ABC and uh, take possession of whatever information they had mm. as part of, they say, the investigation into the leaking of classified information from government departments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can see, like, with my background, having been in the military and uh, having worked with government and understanding how they work uh, and also understanding the, the reason that we do classify information, which I might say I was always taught that the reason information is classified is not necessarily to protect the information itself, but to protect the information source. And so, for example, if just say that a country was... Uh, listening to the telephone of the leader of another country and some information was gained and then that information got leaked. It's not the information that's leaked that's important. The really important thing to government is the fact that they don't want this other country's leader knowing that they're actually listening to their telephone calls, right? So it's the source yeah. and the means by which the information was yeah. gathered that, that really is what's being protected by these classifications. And that actually runs contrary to some of the arguments that have been put forward in this current instance. Yes. Um, so, you know, there are good reasons for all these things. And these systems have, have developed that way for a reason. But we're in a time of change now where things aren't the way they used to be. Uh, we need to change our systems. We, need, we are changing our values. That's a process that's happening naturally be, because of the complexity. And some of these systems are obviously becoming far too rigid to cope with modern day, or it's actually postmodern day life, isn't it? Mm. So, so I, I do understand the challenges, but in this case, uh, what it looks like is that the government may be acting and the agencies may be acting like the federal police may be acting uh, at the um, insistence of government to uh, save the government's face and save embarrassment which is really not what these laws and security class classifications were constructed for mm. uh, and uh, we, we don't know the the truth of the case this is something that's you know under investigation and uh, in question at the moment so we're not claiming uh, that we know the truth either way but these are some of the dissonant uh, topics that are floating around in public discourse and so the public uh, on the one hand uh, you know considering the possibility that okay this is really important to national security so it's something that has to happen but then again uh, having a free press and having the capacity to criticise government's actions openly in the media is also critical to democracy. And so which of those things is more important? And, you know, which way does the, does the sort of uh, balance need to fall at this moment? And no doubt, of course, people's personal freedoms uh, are then threatened too with the possibility of, uh, of an uh, excessive oversight by government and other agencies on people itself. And we're seeing, for example... Uh, the city of Perth and Brisbane rolling out new facial rec recognition CCTV cameras. Um, this that's, is that's a good point. So these things aren't happening in isolation. No. They're, they're happening at a time where society is being overrun with uh, surveillance, government-driven surveillance, uh, and the governments, all, you know, governments all around the world are putting forward these arguments that the world is a dangerous place and we're doing this to protect you. But then again, we see evidence of corporate capture of government, where government's acting in the interests of private corporations and not in the interests of the general public. So there are many, many factors to consider here. Yeah. Yeah, the technology in uh, Perth and, and uh, on the East Coast in Brisbane was recently rolled out on the West and East Coast uh, with little, if any, consultation with the public. Um, 
and the, the, the government, sorry, it's not written very well, consultation with the government, with the public that the government plans to watch. And I think that's the thing, like on one hand, and that distance between, well, we need to be safe, we need to be secure, you're telling us we're afraid, we should be afraid of this, that and the other, and yet you're not actually consulting us about how we're going to manage that, how we're going to, you know, uh, transform our, uh, our our space to to deal with these issues that are that are, that are real to a degree, but we you know fear is such a big driver that you know, it's a bit hard to determine what what people are going to really do with that. No, and and uh, fear is such a common driver at the moment, largely because most people don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why the world seems to be going backwards at the moment. And uh, you know why things aren't comfortable like they used to be, and we we want to go back to being comfortable like we used to be, which is what is driving the regression back to simpler value sets, and with that comes simpler decision-making processes, and those simpler decision-making processes just don't uh, meet the requirements of a very very complex world where things are not black and white anymore. Yeah. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.